You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Nice night for it, ain't it, Mr. O'Hara? You didn't answer me, Mr. O'Hara. You ought to speak when you're spoken to. I'd hate to have to report you to the lady's husband. I said it's a nice night for it. Hey, Mike, if you'll pardon me this intrusion, there's a couple of police officers out here. Cops. I don't speak their language, see? And they want me to identify this guy. What's the Spanish for drunken bum? Mrs. Bannister, can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? I object! As a matter of fact, you and Michael O'Hara have kissed each other, haven't you? To name one occasion, you were seen in the aquarium of this city kissing each other. Do you deny that? No. No further questions. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. And also back in the booth is Mr. Peter Flynn. Happy to be here, Mike. November 2021 continues with a look at Orson Welles' The Lady from Shanghai. It's the story of Michael O'Hara, played by Welles, a sailor who falls in with a weird group of people, a gorgeous blonde Elsa, played by Rita Hayworth, the titular Lady from Shanghai, her husband, Arthur Bannister, a high-powered lawyer, and his partner, Grisby. A 
Well, he's kind of a weirdo who wants to fake his own death and pin it on Michael. We'll definitely be ruining this film as we go forward. So if you haven't seen the movie, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Spencer, when was the first time you saw The Lady from Shanghai and what did you think? I was in college. I I wouldn't remember what year, but I was running the College Film Society and scheduled Lady from Shanghai because I wanted to see more Orson Welles. I confess my first time seeing it, I was kind of disappointed. You know, I loved the shootout in, in the Hall of Mirrors at the end, but yeah, kind of didn't, didn't really me. I guess I'm not really surprised in a way, because I think that this is, you know, one, it's, as we'll very much get into, it's, it's like one of Wells's problem films. You know, there, there are issues with it and sort of how it got caught and all kinds of things. But I think there's also just like a level of, maturity that the movie requires of the audience, you know, certain life experiences you have to have been through in order to really connect with what's interesting about it. I guess that's also something that we'll get into. So I've watched and rewatched it actually a bunch of times in the last couple of years. You know, I'll say that I still don't love it, but I'm really fascinated by it. This this movie is a is a big object of fascination to me in Wells's work. Yeah, my relationship has definitely changed over time. And in particular, in the last few years, really been paying a lot of attention to this one. How about you, Peter? So obviously, it was sometime in college in the early 90s. And it was, you know, when I was first really taking that deep dive into Wells. And I know there was that period, 91, 92, when I was just lapping up at anything Wells related that I could find. And I remember really liking it. And the interesting thing is that every time I've seen it subsequently, I like it a little bit less. And thanks to you, Mike, I like it even less now because I, I, I watched it again for this podcast thinking, okay, it's been a while. It's been a couple of years. Maybe, maybe my opinion will change. And no, I like this film less and less. I find it a very dispiriting film to watch, to be honest. Yes, it's fascinating, but all the wrong reasons. It's fascinating because it has been so compromised and so beat up and bloodied. And I, I got to say, of, of all of Wells's films, it's, it's near the bottom for me. And in some cases, maybe it is the bottom. I got to be honest. That's not to dissuade anybody from watching it or rewatching it. I mentioned if Rob St. Mary were on this podcast, he would say a bad Orson Welles film is better than any Michael Bay film, the best Michael Bay film. So your mileage may vary. I was very afraid coming into this episode because I was like, I'm not really digging this movie that much. I remember liking it more. And then when I rewatched it recently, I was like, I'm not connecting with this. And then watching it again this morning, I was like, yeah, I'm still not connecting with this. And it's this idea, you know, when people say, oh, this movie's confusing, I usually just, I'm like, yeah, you don't know confusing movies. You've not seen some of the movies that I've seen. You don't know confusing. And I got to admit, there are a lot of times where I'm just like, what is this character's motivation? What is going on here? Like, I don't care who shot the chauffeur and, you know, the big sleep or anything. I don't care about that kind of stuff because it all kind of fits together. But with this one, it's just like, what is happening? Why am I watching this? And there's such great set pieces in here, but they just don't necessarily cohese to me. They, they don't fit together. It's like there's pieces missing from the larger jigsaw puzzle. This is interesting as an experience because I expected going into this that I was going to be the one who likes the movie the least. And I think I like the movie the most out of the three of us. First of all, kudos to, to you for all the research you do. And sending along that, that script was fascinating. I, I didn't read it all, but I, I skimmed through it and I read the bulk of it. 
it's still confusing, <laughs> but it, but it plays out much better in this this original script version, which which we should talk about. But you know, at the end of the film, in the great climax, right in the Hall of Mirrors sequence, leading up to that, we have Wells and voiceover recounting the plot, as it were, and it still makes no sense. It still doesn't. But you pause that film on any of those frames at the end, any single frame, one twenty-fourth of a second, and there's the film, this little guy trapped in a big, complex world. That's it. Visually, in, in those moments, the, the, the film is so clear, even if the plot is, is, is so muddled. The Big Sleep is ridiculously, famously confusing. And what holds it together, and if you've seen the two different versions of it, a later version where it leans more into the confusion it is, is actually better because the emotional center is the relationship, you know, between Bogart and Bacall. And I think, I think part of what goes on in the cutting down of this movie is it gets cut down to its really like confusing and harebrained plot. I think this is like a sub MacGuffin kind of a plot that's going on. I mean, it's so obviously ridiculous. And, you know, Wells has committed that kind of thing, you know, I guess Rosebud is is something that he always said was like that he thought was pretty stupid in Citizen Kane as like a vehicle to get you through. And I think it's pretty obvious that in this in this movie, it's a similar but even more absurdly stupid kind of plot gimmick taken from the novel. The relationship then doesn't have the time to really breathe. And so one of the things that makes me fascinated by this movie but not necessarily love it is that over time, I've also learned a lot about, like, you know, Orson Welles' life and Rita Hayworth's life. And in the last week, I did kind of a deep dive into her life and gains a lot from sort of extra narrative material. Like, the little bits, you know, I was able to hook into the movie a lot more this time just by virtue of, you know, reading a Wells biography and a Rita Hayworth biography back to back. And then seeing what's reflected in their relationship within the film. So that creates a fascination, but it's mostly intellectual and it mostly depends on what I can bring in terms of knowledge to the film. And on that, on that score, I'm a satisfied customer, but it also makes it hard to recommend. I'm sure they would have cut some, you know, from that it was an hour longer when Wells was kind of kicked off of the project. I'm sure it wasn't going to be two and a half hours, but that radical cutting down to an hour and a half and the focus on the stupidity of the main plot, you know, and not getting enough of what I would imagine would be a lot more buy-in for this relationship really, really hurts it. And especially in, in contrast to another absurd noir like The Big Sleep, where its plot really makes no sense, but the movie works like gangbusters. I think it's it's pretty interesting that way. Or even... Comparison with Touch of Evil, which also has a similarly harebrained plot that if you like stop to really think about the plot, it's not great. It's like all the character interactions that make Touch of Evil amazing. And I think, yeah, in this case, maybe Wells wasn't up to that level and Harry Cohn cut it down. I suspect that's probably more the case and why it's, you know, less satisfying. But you got to come armed for bear, I think, to really enjoy Lady from Shanghai. Well, it, it's it's definitely well slumming it, right? He's he he's did a stranger after, prior to this, and he's trying to ingratiate himself back in to the with the Hollywood elites and prove that he can make a genre picture, prove that he can make a studio picture, and be a good boy. And it bears all the trappings of that, right? Just the kind of a silly, goofy genre. 
picture and and reading the script or what I read of the script, it's still there. It's it's there in that in that much longer 165 page script. It's essentially a, a pot boiler. But but I think you can see in the intentions of the film a similar interest and preoccupation in space and geography and moving out of this. Ironically, while he's trying to ingratiate himself into the studio system or back into the studio system, he's, he's getting out of the studio. He's shooting out on location. And in that sense, he's anticipating the naked city. He's anticipating um, the treasure of the Sierra Madre by moving out into the real world. One of his big complaints about the studio is that it, just pasted a musical score over the entirety of the film, drowning out all his, his background ambience and voices and, and this kind of complex worldizing sound, you know? So I think the film is fascinating or could have been really interesting, not necessarily for its plot, but in its, in its style and its sensitivity to space and geography and, and the characteristics of, of, of the space. And it should be said that the original script was set entirely in New York City and the funhouse sequences at the Palisades. And I think that's kind of the, the geography of the film. The opening sequence of the, again, the original screenplay is set in, 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 in Central Park, as it is in, in this version. But there's a lot more to do with the space and the background and, and characters. And, you know, all that background action really has a character all of its own. And it would have been fascinating to see that. And that's why I find this film very, very painful to watch. It's not like Amberson's. Amberson's, you've got a good chunk, almost an hour of unmolested material in there. So you can see what Wells intended. I don't think there's one scene in this film that hasn't been tampered with. I don't think there's any real sense of what Wells was going for anywhere in this film. Maybe at the end in, in, the, in the mirror sequence, but even there, Wells said, complained bitterly about the music and how he wanted that to play out with silence. So the only thing you heard was the crashing glass and the gunshots, right? And, and that whole sequence in the crazy house was, was 20, 20 odd minutes of, of screen time. And it's down boiled down now to, you know, seven minutes or so. So a lot was taken out of that. So I don't think there's, there's any scene in this film that, that, hasn't been severely compromised. That's why I find this a, a, kind of a painful, dispiriting film to watch. You can see the genius in the corners, but that's all. It fits in. The idea fits in so well with film noir as far as the voiceover, the flashback structure, the little guy against the greater machine. And one definition of noir that I always enjoy is, you know, you're fucked at the beginning, you're even more fucked at the end. But he's not even more fucked at the end. He kind of gets away with it at the end. I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't that doesn't jive with anything, you know? It- Adding to that too, though, is that this is Wells's poorest performance on screen. He just, I just find him very flat and dull. He doesn't characterize this tough, brawling black Irish, a man who killed somebody in the Spanish Civil War. I don't buy that for a second. And he can't pull off the the fight scene at the beginning of the film. So he doesn't convince. And yeah, I agree. He, He kind of sleepwalks through the whole film. And maybe that ties into the themes of the book, you know, a man just so enamored by this woman he's 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 just following her wherever she goes and somnambulant in a in a sense but it doesn't it doesn't improve the film at all 
Well, it's, it's a rare role for him where he's not playing the heavy. And one of the things that's, that's interesting, I think a key for Wells is that he needs to play a heavy in order to bring out as much sympathy as possible. There's a kind of opposite motion that goes on. And when he's playing a romantic lead, even a romantic lead who's not very heroic and is totally awful in the final moments, which is actually one of the things I like most about the film, the ending and his awfulness and the way that he walks away is, is really like, you know, fascinating to me, but I just don't think it's a role that's very well suited to him. And I think he found out and then he's stuck to, you know, heavies after this. Yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that he went on to do what Macbeth after this and that they held on to Lady from Shanghai long enough that it came out the exact same time that Macbeth came out or right around the exact same time. So they both failed spectacularly at the same time. And, you know, Mike, you mentioned it being having all the key elements or most of the key elements of the film noir. And Macbeth plays like a film noir, and so does Othello. I mean, there are moments that are gorgeous. You know, you talk about the funhouse stuff, but yeah, it is every shot is compromised. And even looking at some of the extras that are out there and seeing, you know, still shots of Rita Hayworth and promotional shots where there are all these legs hanging from the ceiling, or there was one shot where it was a skull and it looked was like still had skin from the nose up. And then it was a skull from the nose down and the top of the skull looks very much like Rita Hayworth. And then you've got a cigarette sticking out of the skull's mouth and the cigarette plays such an important part to this whole movie. I'm like, okay, well that's legit. You know, that should have been in there and it not being in there is such a blow. And yeah, it feels you mentioned a little via email when we were going back and forth about this, the length of shots. I mean, this movie feels like it was edited in a wood chipper because it just moves too fast. I'm like, wait a second. What is happening? Like, not only does it feel like the plot is about to fly apart, it feels like the whole film is about to fly apart just because of all the splice marks. It's just like, oh my God, how can you even run this through a projector? It's just going to, you know, suddenly disintegrate. Citizen Kane has a, an average shot length of 11 seconds, and, and I think Amberson's is, is even longer. And, and I think the average shot length of a Hollywood film of the 30s and 40s was about eight seconds. This film cuts every five seconds. And Wells had, Wells's original, original cut, apparently, was filled with these long takes. And you can see, as Spencer was saying in, in, in his comments on, on email, you can see traces of these big, long, glorious tracking shots that we see in, in The Stranger. You, you know that Macbeth has a 12-minute has a shot. It has a real-length shot. Macbeth, um, released the same year as Rope, came out just a few months after Rope, but you know, Wells was pushing toward these long, long shots. And so the irony is that produces this film that's cutting every five seconds. And that's clearly the the, the impetus of the studio and, and Harry Cohen and Wells had been assigned Viola Lawrence, who was a veteran cutter way back to the 1910s. And yeah, she cut the hell out of it. And not only not only a case of cutting down, but then reshooting close-ups and shot reverse shot, over-the-shoulder shot, and just cramming those in, whether they match the, the cutting or, or not, is is just just criminal and it just breaks every scene. The great scene, and it's a great scene in the script when Grisby approaches Michael and says, I want you to kill me for five thousand dollars. In the script, it, it plays out in New York City. And they move, they, they, 
they're on a boat and they dock in lower Manhattan and they go to the office and they go up to the office. And Grisby has this great line about suicide that was committed across the road from a, you know, a, a jumper. And he describes in, in, in tremendous details, great, great scene here. It's in Acapulco, right? It's in Mexico. And they walk up this hill, clearly a long shot with a lot of background action. And every, every few seconds, there's a, an awkwardly cut in close up that was shot back in the studio. No continuity in, in terms of, you know, the way the hair is made up and very, very awkward, bad, bad cutting. Again, just Wells kind of gave into this and allowed this to happen and moved on to whatever the next project was. Macbeth, probably. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really tragic. And it's a shame, too, because there are such good actors and there are some really good performances in here. I agree with you that Wells' Michael O'Hara really does leave you wanting, but Glenn Anders as Grisby, oh, man, so good. And talk about close-ups. I just love the close-ups of this guy and just his affectations, you know, target practice, that those things. Oh, he's just such a great villain. And Everett Sloan, I really love Everett Sloan in here. And a lot of times, so I'm just like, what movie's ever slown in? It doesn't really feel like he's in this movie. It seems like he's in another movie. I still love him a lot, but it's just kind of want to see that movie. I want to see the movie that he's in. All the more grotesque with these wide angle close ups that Wells shoots them in, you know, and the sweating and the, oh, just, and the two canes. Wells claimed that uh, Everett Sloan was, a, he was a radio actor. He didn't know how to move. So he gave him the canes to, you know, kind of, keep him stiff and, and give him something to do. And, 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 and Sloan makes the most of it. Yeah. He's just great. Wells had the best supporting actors. That whole idea of having your main villain physically disabled. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the main villain from once upon a time in the West, you know, this whole idea of, you know, the guy who can control all of these things is there behind the scenes, but he can't even move from place to place without needing these canes. And it's interesting because he actually uses the two canes. One was really there and the other one was a stunt cane from Citizen Kane. Wait a minute. There was no cane in Citizen Kane. I love this whole idea of the disabled antagonist and just that he is stronger than O'Hara, even though he's physically weaker. And, I, and, you know, you can read it, of course, as a metaphor for sexual impotence, his inability to satisfy, you know, Rita Hayward's character. Yeah, absolutely. Everett Sloan was much younger than what he's playing in the movie and much younger than he played in Citizen Kane. Uh, I, I mean, everybody plays different ages in Citizen Kane, but it's just interesting that you know, he, he died in 1965 when he was only 55 years old. And in this movie, he seems to be in his, and it's like, no, years before that. But Sloan is, is really, uh, he's, he's great in it. The way that, the way that he spits out the word lover, Rita Hayworth repeatedly always calling her lover is so poisonous. It's great. Well, him with lover and then Grisby with fella. Just always, oh, just the patter that these two guys have is fantastic. There are disagreements over who in the movie is supposedly based on Nelson Rockefeller, but the, but a, apparently Nelson Rockefeller always called Wells fella, and they had had this falling out. You know, Wells's political activities and over it's all true. And, uh, so one, one account alleges that, 
that the the fella affectation is a Nelson Rockefeller thing. Things I didn't know in researching this, the fact that Joseph Cotton may very well have a cameo appearance in this film at around the 37 minute mark. And this is not, not my observation. This comes from George Willeman, the Library of Congress, who notes that there's this, you know, one character 37 minutes in in a scene in, in Mexico who, as Rita Hayward is running from Wells, nods to her and carries on leading a donkey. And sure enough, on the freeze frame, it looks an awful lot like, uh, like Joseph Cotton. I think it has to be. You know, delving into biography, for me, the fascination of the film is the smuggling in of so much autobiography, which, you know, given the, the history of putting it together, that it's the pot boiler, all this kind of stuff, it's just interesting coming after The Stranger, which is truly a very impersonal film, that, that then Wells tries to use this film, you know, tried and maybe could have been successful if he'd stuck around for the edit, if he hadn't been kicked off of the edit. And, you know, of course, his his like work in the edit in the editing room in this period is very spotty. But it's it's interesting because it seems like he did stick around for a chunk of Lady from Shanghai's editing and then got kicked out. Whereas on Macbeth, he just sort of absconded to Europe and like, you know, let let it all shake out. You know, so he, he's a really fascinating figure. But back to in the way that he thought about editing and in the way that, that he worked it. But Regardless, the real, the really interesting stuff in this movie is, is the residue of strange kind of personal material. And I guess on one level, that's not surprising because he is making a portrait of a marriage that is disintegrating and for which both Wells and Hayworth, you know, they both recognize this marriage later as a kind of, you know, the, the one that got away. This is not just like, a couple of celebrities getting married for a couple of years and then it falls apart really does seem for both of them that this, this was, this was a really, really big thing that, that, that fucked them both up, especially Hayward, but also really messed with Wells and Barbara Leeming's biography gets really leans into his childhood abandonment issues. But I think, I think we can, it's really, really interesting. The ending has a certain kind of power of seeing, you know, somebody act out this like really excessively cruel act of abandonment and the way I find, I find this ending of this film and the, of course the ending of many noir films really interesting in terms of the relationship to the production code, because morally what the main character does in that last scene is utterly indefensible. It would seem like that the code would not allow that to happen, except, you know, that this is a, this is a woman who's a murderer. So she's allowed to die in the most horrible, kind of cruel fashion and left behind, you know, by, by her lover or lover, as Everett Sloan might put it, she's left behind in this excessively cruel fashion that is just, this feels utterly vicious to me and very, very sad. And I, I think, um, uh, Peter, you t don't want to speak for you. You mentioned the word dispiriting. I find, I find this dispiriting in a kind of good way. It is, there's, there's like a well of like real darkness and not, not like edgelord darkness, not just, you know, the dark, dark that we put on stuff, but the kind of really sad melancholy mixed with fear, mixed with self-loathing, you know, kind of darkness that, that Wells really did bring out of his films and that the films that traffic in this kind of darkness, like Amberson's, and like Touch of Evil, had to be messed with. Well, certainly, you know, failed himself on a number of fronts when he was making these films. But I do think that there's there's a level where 
the kind of darkness that some of his films traffic in is is something that, especially at the time they were made, and I think even now, would be alarming to studio executives because this is not entertainment darkness. This is not this is not fun, thrilling darkness. This is like Dark Knight of the Soul. How do I connect with this? And does this put me in a bad place because it's making me think of a relationship that where I was at fault and I threw it away and, you know, that I've never quite recovered from it? Sure, absolutely. There's tremendously cruel abandonment at the end of the film. And it's an abandonment that's mirrored like the Hall of Mirrors. It's, it's mirrored, it mirrors Wells' relationship with Hayward quite possibly, but also his abandonment of the film and his abandonment so many other films just walking off and leaving them to the to the fate of the studios. Yeah, it feels kind of disingenuous when it's like, well, I wrote a memo talking about how much I dislike <laughs> the music. And it's like, okay, and? I don't want to defend Wells too much for the walking away, but I do think it's necessary to bring up how directors functioned in editing rooms at the time. And at this time, directors were not very hands-on in editing processes. However, Wells was the kind of director who needed to be hands-on and in many ways invented a kind of hands-on auteur director way of doing things that he abandoned himself. But, you know, with Citizen Kane and up to a certain point on Ambersons before he took off for, you know, It's All True, there's, there's a way in which Wells was directing films in a very different fashion that required being hands-on until the end. You know, John Ford and Howard Hawks, for instance, were very strong auteurs, you know, within the, within that time and within that, that world. And they developed ways of, of shooting in order that it would, could only cut one way, but they were not necessarily hands on in the editing in the day to day. They were not right there by, by the editor's side. And, you know, when you look at the arc of Wells's career, it's later in his career that it seems like he figures out that he needs to be in the editing room and really get into the nitty gritty with it. And I think he abandons the films, but he's really, I don't know, it's really tough. A lot of directors did not, a lot of directors moved on to the next project. They had to, because they did two or three a year. You know, they, they made a lot of features and a lot of directors were not in the editing room. And it was like a producer kind of overseeing and then it came out well. And a lot of the people who are called auteurs are called auteurs because they developed strategies that made it so the editor would have to cut it the way they had shot it. You know, Wells is very commanding in the way that he shot things, but there's, there's also a need to, to cut up the material as well. And um, it's his own fault, but it's also, to be fair, a little bit of the business at the time. And, and the big deal with him is that, like, on, on uh, Citizen Kane, everybody resented him because he got final cut, which directors didn't have. At that time, you know, like the biggest directors in Hollywood didn't have final cut, which is precisely why they'd have to shoot in, in such a way as to make sure that the editor couldn't do it any, any, in any other fashion. And so Wells got that and then kind of abandoned. There's a lot that's bad about Orson Wells, but there's a lot that's bad about a bunch of other Hollywood directors and their behaviors. And there's a lot that's bad about the industry at the time that he totally fits into. And I think he's just a particularly interesting lightning rod figure who's not necessarily worse than a lot of the people around him. And as an artist is better than a lot of the people around him. But, uh, you know, just doesn't you know, is, is kind of a square peg in the round hole. It's very rudimentary for me to remind everybody listening that he came from radio. And so the importance of audio is just paramount to him. The importance of music, the importance of voices. 
I was listening to the commentary track in my car and there would be moments where Bogdanovich wasn't talking and you could hear the story play out very much like a radio drama. And I think that that is such a strength of Wells is if you can turn off the picture and just listen to the whole thing, you can hear the whole story. So I can really imagine that the idea, especially that music, that cloying, cloying music is just anathema to him and the idea of yeah play out the entire funhouse scene without music over it i mean i was watching a little bit of that today and i was watching it with headphones on and the moment when he is sliding down that large slide you can hear sounds of fireworks going off and i'm just like okay this is really interesting you know he's doing this the stuff with audio that really shouldn't be there but it works really well I can imagine that that would have been just such a powerhouse scene and all of these other set pieces would have just really packed a punch. But instead, it's just like it feels like that punch is winding up and then just goes right past your ear. You know, it's 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 almost it's stiff. that idea, you know, that a painter will paint a picture and then paint over the picture or something else. Clouseau's film about Picasso is a wonderful illustration of that. We start off with a beach during the day, but we paint over and over and over and it becomes a nighttime scene. And I think that's what's happened here. There is a film, there is an Orson Welles film underneath this that has been reshot and recut. And, and, and there are moments when the, the film underneath kind of pokes its nose up and you can see elements of it. If you recommend that everybody listening to this podcast go back and watch that scene that I was talking about with, with Grisby and, and Michael as they climb this hill and Grisby gives him this offer of, you know, $5,000. Watch that. Now, first of all, you'll just notice the disruptive cutting that the studio put in and these these big close-ups and shot reverse shots and all that. But in the background, you'll see characters, background people just walking by and they'll say something much like he did in Ambersons with the dancers, right? When that ballroom scene, somebody will walk from background through the foreground and say something at that at that moment. And in the script, it's it's all of these people. It's tourists talking about but money and how things cost and, and all of this. And it's leading up to this, what's $5,000 worth to you, Michael? You know, so there's so much going on in that background. And you can, you can see and hear traces of it. Some of the lines of dialogue have been muffled. They've been brought down to, to make room for the music track. But you can still kind of identify little bits. Yeah, I think it's that radio background and that glorious sound that you you often get in Welsh films that you just don't you just don't get here. And I, I agree that The Stranger is a very impersonal film, but at the same time, there's so much of Wells. You've got these long crane dolly shots that are wonderful. You've got the 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 store that everybody comes in and out of, you know, the, the owners playing checkers. And, and just think of that space and all the sounds and that space and the outside traffic on. Just, it's a lived in space that you can, you can, you can see and hear. And this film I think would have played out like that. And it just doesn't, but it's there underneath the, 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 all the surface textures. Since you mentioned that scene, another thing that's very striking about it is the blocking over the shots as they move higher and higher up the hill. And it doesn't actually lack for what we would call close-ups. It's just that the close-ups are in the masters for each chunk of it, that that people will move into close-ups. 
And then all of a sudden, when they have these process close-ups that they made them shoot in the studio when they got back to California, not only are they they standing out because their rear projection and, and whatnot, but they also just don't they just don't go with what is very obvious kind of design for this this kind of motion of going uh, you know going higher and higher with these people and kind of spinning around each other. Yeah, and Wells typically shooting you know significantly bo- below or above eye level, so we're looking up or down on characters. The inserts are shot you know approximately at eye level, which would be standard for 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 Hollywood studio picture so it just doesn't it doesn't match at all at all although you know that that scene and it ends with this high angle shot looking down and these two characters on the cliff's edge does anticipate similar sequence in Othello when Othello and Iago are right at that cliff's edge remember and it's very nicely done scene in Hollywood and, and when he can control the means of production which wasn't always the case he's gunning for these long takes these minute 30 second minute long takes or in some cases 12 13 minute long takes where actors are moving in very complicated patterns and the camera and the and the the dolly and the crane movements are are equally complex there's a great five six minute sequence in in touch of evil not the opening scene but scene in that room when they interrogate sanchez or whatever his name is the the kid they frame him with the dynamite that whole scene plays out in one long take when, when, when he's not in charge and not in control, he's cutting like crazy and you end up with, you know, Othello, Effer Fake, which we've talked about, and, and The Other Side of the Wind, which that, that, that film is cutting every two seconds more at, at certain scenes. And the trial is really interesting in being a tension between really long takes and then sequences that are cut very, very fast. You know, because obviously Wells had a number of films that were messed with by other editors but for instance, in uh, you know a movie like Mr. Arcaden, you can see more of Wells's work reflected in the end product, shot for shot and cut for cut. And yeah, I do think that Lady from Shanghai is maybe thoroughly the most damaged. I I consider the last twenty odd minutes of Magnificent Ambersons to be the most damaged because obviously this was you know when you read the the script and you've seen the pictures of what they were doing and you know where he was headed with it, it's really obvious that this was going to be amazing and you kind of watch it disintegrate. But yeah, thoroughly throughout, you know, Lady from Shanghai, even leaving in things that Wells wanted out. For instance, he didn't think that the opening sequence in Central Park worked at all, and he wanted it cut. So that was a part that he he thought, yeah, just cut that out entirely, and the movie will be better. But the studio, you know, wanted wanted that in, and then cut other things that, that he wouldn't have cut. It's the things we don't know. Mike, my favorite single podcast of all time is your podcast on Ambersons, that epic four and a half hour podcast on Ambersons, just brilliant. Everything you did in that, just brilliant. But especially when you did, when you read out the comment, the comment cards from the preview, right? And, and that film's destruction has been so well documented. Here is an hour of footage is gone, completely gone. Wells rarely talked about the editing and, and what was cut out. And he didn't seem that bothered by it in, in hindsight. And, and we've got a we've got a script that that predates the film by a year or so. Obviously, none of the footage survives, or very little. There's a few outtakes that survive. 
And that's kind of it. And, and we really don't know what happened in the year that the film was in the hands of Harry Cohen and Viola Lawrence. They took a year on the post-production of that film. And, and what they did in that year has never been fully documented and, 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 ex- and explained. And, you know, I think the best account is, is in this book. James, I say this book on radio, right? James Nairmore's The Magic of Orson Welles. He, he goes into some depth about what was taking out of the film, but it's, it's, there's just not a lot of information there, it seems. I would be really curious to know more about the aquarium scene because that is one of my favorite moments in the film. Not necessarily because what Wells and Hayworth are doing, but more the stuff that's going on behind them with those process shots. And I think there's like an octopus that seems to be going up when I think it would be going down. There are the fish that would be one size, but he's blown them up into these really large monstrous fish. I really love what he's doing in that. That is a great scene. And we think we're giving Wells a very hard time on this. And with the film too, there's a lot of good stuff in this film. And that, that's a great, that's a great scene. It's a great scene. And I will say as well, I really like, uh, so, so the grotesques are amazing. I really like Rita Hayworth's performance in this movie. And it's, again, it's sort of cut to ribbons in the sense that we're getting scenes that should have more emotional heft to them for what she's doing, but she's, she's great. And, um, I think, you know, she, she like lived with this, this problem throughout her career of people thinking, oh, she's just beautiful. She's a dummy. She's not actually that good. I rewatched Gilda just for comparison point with this movie. I think she's terrific in Gilda. I mean, no wonder in that talk about bizarre and absurd, like that plot is completely ridiculous. Makes no sense. The like love story between doesn't make sense as a love triangle because it's a love straight line between the two men. And then somehow like, you know, Rita Hayworth is stuck with these two guys, but what she's doing, she's called upon to be all kinds of different misogynistic things throughout the entire movie. Like her character doesn't make sense. And somehow she manages to hold it together and she's great. And this is a very different performance from Gilda where she, she's playing someone who is like, or like herself really damaged and kind of watchful, and ultimately the plot calls upon her to, you know, murder her also murderous husband at the end, and murder this uh, this 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 crazy dude who wants to fake his own death. She's really really good, and that also contributes to the the sense of uh, of of this this strange psychodrama that's going on in the film of. At once that she and Wells were trying to patch things up, she especially thought that using working together could maybe stop their divorce from being completed and that they could get back together. And they kind of almost did, but it didn't happen. But we're seeing this psychodrama of abandonment that's going on over the course of the film. And it's really it's really hard. And especially, I guess, you know, for me, watching it more from her point of view this time was like really fascinating and effective. But I just want to give Rita Hayworth credit for being a terrific actress. And and I think, you know, just looking at these two performances in, in uh, close proximity this week, I, you know, I didn't know her personally, but I know a little bit about acting. I think she was a smart actress. And maybe she was too quiet to come across as smart to others. But I, I really see a lot of intelligence in her choices. 
Well, she's so much more than just a haircut. And I know that Harry Cohn went nuts for that. They tried to turn it into a publicity thing that they were cutting her hair and dyeing it blonde. I think it looks really good and I think it works for the character. I mean, it is so the opposite of the femme fatale with the dark hair. I like this whole idea of her being from Shanghai that that plays into the movie as we go along. I kind of wish there was a little bit more. I'm always fascinated by quote unquote orientalism in films. There's that, especially in films noir where, you know, the Asian is coded as other and evil. And so, you know, Michael descends into this underworld of the Chinese and she descends after him. And then she's able to speak the language and she's got the, there's the group of Chinese guys and I'm, not really sure what they're doing there. That's one of those where I'm just like, okay, they seem to be up to something, but I'm not really sure exactly what that is. Again, it, I think one of the reasons why I might dislike this movie is a little, a little is because it makes me feel dumb just because I'm just like, wait, should be following everything. I should know what's happening. But then there are times where I'm like, no, I just don't get it. I don't get why these guys are here. So I, I almost wish there was like a pop-up video version of it to be like, these people are here because of this and that and this other thing. It's like, okay, thanks. Because even reading the book, I'm like, yeah, this isn't gelling completely for me. The, the film works it out to be longer, both to emphasize the love story more and then also to provide more action that it can be more action-packed because in a way it's the action of the, the big action in the book is over. And then there's a lot more time with, with like legal proceedings and lawyering and all that kind of stuff before coming back around to action at the end. And that's something that a book can do very well. But in a movie, uh, if, if we had kind of love the courtroom stuff, this bonkers courtroom stuff in this movie, it's so perfunctory in a way. But when it lands in the courtroom, I had completely forgotten about the courtroom, like, you know, for obvious reasons since the, since I'd seen it in the nineties, I just forgot about that entirely because it was kind of boring to me at that time. And then when it popped up, I was like, oh, and I got disappointed, except that the way that it plays out is so ridiculous and ends in that big knockdown drag out in the judge's office. It's another aspect of the grotesque of the of the film, this grotesque, farcical judge and, and, and the proceedings. And it's, it's Erskine Sanford, yet another Citizen Kane alum. The third, if we count Joseph Cotton, that's three Kane alums. And he's great. He's great. It's that little character that makes a big... A big imprint. Mike, you mentioned the Chinatown. I love all of that stuff. It's a very interesting flavor. It's, of course, it wasn't in the original script because the original script was so bound to, to New York. And the Palisades is the location of the, of the funhouse, whereas here it's clearly San Francisco or the environs there. It's kind of a globe-trotting film as well. There's a lot of location, Mexico, New York. San Francisco, Sausalito, you know, you got a lot of a lot of different areas and they and they each impact the plot and the character and unfortunately the New York stuff because it's so um studio bound doesn't really register but the other locations do and the the, the Chinese theater is a great little touch. You can you can really see this director Again, like like John Huston and 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 Jules Dassin with, with the Naked City, he's he's moving into these locations, and it's not an entirely studio bound, or at least it wasn't the intention to be a studio bound picture. We we all know it became one. Yeah, I don't know how much stock to put into what Wells says sometimes, but according to what I've heard, 
he was just about done with location shooting and they could have finished up within three days when they got the word, no, you have to come back to the studio and, and finish it up here. And I think that led to a lot of the process shots, but that's even before we get into how it was hacked together with even more process shots. So it's like, okay. So again, it's tough to tell just how much stuff is going on there. They were in five months shooting this film. This was be- before the reshoots. This film was being shot for five months. Kane was made in three months and Amberson's two months. And, and then he would make, you know, famously make Macbeth in, in three weeks. So he spends, well, so what's going on in all those, I suppose, a lot of partying on Errol Flynn's yacht, right? Which, they, which, is, which is the yacht that appears in the film. And Errol Flynn was on board. So I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of partying. I had also heard that Rita was getting sick quite a bit, and they actually shot down for her having That's that illness. Right. I'm not sure what that was, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a big all... part of it. Yeah, she she did get sick, and then that shut things down for a while. And it's one of those, you know, the record of you know whether he was really profligate and went over budget and over schedule. When you look into the schedules on these movies, that, that's not necessarily borne out. And he could be fast when he wanted to be. This was also a more, ex- because it was a Re- Rita Hayworth movie, it was a more expensive production built to go longer. But yeah, five months is really long. But a, a big portion of that was when she wasn't capable of shooting because she was really ill. Yeah. And to your point, Peter, there were, I think so. And I, to your point from earlier, as far as this being shot on Errol Flynn's boat, apparently he disappeared for a few days and they weren't allowed to shoot the boat stuff without him on it. That was part of the contract. So they had to wait for him to come back with some, let's say, floozy around the way. And then they were able to go again. So hopefully Wells was shooting, you know, pickups during that time. I was almost getting a little knife in the water or even to go farther with Wells, a deep when it came to some of these boat scenes. And I was like, okay, well, this is cool. And I was kind of hoping for more on the the boat, especially having all these characters, this powder keg of these characters all in this very enclosed space, enclosed, but yet out in the open. And I was like, oh, this will be great. But it just never really seemed to go any place for me. He really doesn't exploit that that location of the boat particularly well, does he? Of course, you know, who knows what was what ended up on the on the cutting room floor. There's that scene with the big shark monologue that Wells has, you know, where where he's telling everybody that they're a group of sharks. And it's it's just a strange, strange scene because it's shot in a way that's really beautiful. It starts with these people having all these, you know, kind of internal tensions. Again, it has close ups that don't seem like they belong in the scene. And especially because they're cut, you know, really short. But the big thing that's so strange about it, it, it sort of generally works, but it feels two or three beats short of provoking his character to give this shark speech. And to your point about like that we haven't made good on what's going on on the boat, that there, there's there's like some sh- dramatic shoe leather that seems missing to the buildup, especially in terms of how you know, Rita Hayworth's character takes it, that she feels really hurt. And it's kind of like, I don't know why you would feel that hurt by this speech. I don't know why he gave this speech yet. It doesn't all seem to match up. And I think I think the scene itself is cut down. And I think some of the, the dramatic beats before are cut down. I'm not sure that I want to watch this movie for two and a half hours. So an hour more footage. But it, I think it's just telling, you know, Lady from Shanghai is maybe good to watch if you're if you're going to make films. By virtue of just just knowing that an hour was cut, 
it's not necessarily that a lot of it shouldn't be cut. It's that clearly the wrong stuff was cut in terms of buy into the characters and, and, and like the larger world of the film and, and what do we dramatically care about? So there are great performances around the ridiculous plot and the ridiculous plot has a certain amount of beats that you got to do to make sense of it. And that part kind of makes sense. But it's everything around, you know, it's the, the penumbra of everything else and all the human relationships around this cockeyed, faked murder plot that has wonderful performances, but is quite silly, doesn't take that much time. And it just feels like that, the, the thing that's the least important, ends up as the only really important part of the film. This plot is a clothesline to hang all this other interesting stuff, the stuff that's really interesting, Wells, and that's what gets gets cut out or submerged underneath the soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't see why they would have started this with a 165-page script. Cut that sucker down. If you're going to use that as your blueprint, let's start there, because there's no way they're going to release a 165-minute film of this. I mean, it. You might aim to be an A picture, but it's going to be a B picture. And even an A picture in these days is not going to run 165 minutes. That's just nuts. You aim for 90 minutes. You know, this is the day of 90 minute films. This is not your two and a half hour Eternals or Dune or any of these movies that come out for light entertainment. This is 90 minutes. You're in, you're out. You know, and some of the best films noir have been told in 70 minutes. So let's just get this going. I mean, he knows thrift he knows how to tell a story and a lot less so i'm not sure why they decided let's go ahead and take this out to the to the wash and see how it goes the whole film seems to be woefully underdocumented. production history the intent wells didn't really talk that much about it but i'm reading what i've read of the script yes there there's there's a lot of stuff that can be cut back and i i think it quite possibly he purposefully wrote a long script knowing that stuff would be cut out, maybe as a bargaining tool, you know? You purposefully overwrite so that you can give the studio the pleasure of cutting out the fat and leaving alone some other stuff. I think that could have been the intention, but, but you know, really, who knows? And, and of course, Wells is complicit in the, in, the, in the compromisation of the film because he's in the reshoots. Right. He, he's an active part in this. It's not Robert Wise editing because he's he's in a different country. He's involved in this. And the, the film that was previewed was featured reshoots that Wells had gone along with condensations of, of scenes that Wells had, if not approved, at least well, went along with it. Right. And then it was cut back even more after after that, after that preview, what went out in what order. Yeah, we simply don't know, and it's it's really too bad. I think there's a great story there. Even more than seeing the Citizen Kane story told and retold and retold all these times, I think seeing the story of what happened with the lady from Shanghai would probably be a little bit more of an interesting thing, especially because it is such a, a flawed film that we ended up with, as opposed to a perfect film like Citizen Kane. It's like, those are always the more interesting stories to me is how does this thing become this thing? You know, how does, how does Battlefield Earth become Battlefield Earth? You know? Well, and I gotta say, as a Wells head, I, not only on the face of it, given the body of work, regardless of a, 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 you know, a movie like Lady from Shanghai that maybe wouldn't have been great anyway, even if he'd gotten, gotten his way. 
I just, I never, ever, ever buy this, the, the myth that like Citizen Kane was the only one that he really finished and the only one that's good. I'm sorry. Citizen Kane is good, but it's no chimes at midnight. Chimes at midnight is a thousand times better than Citizen Kane. Hands down any day. I will watch it again. Citizen Kane, I watch maybe once a decade. Chimes at Midnight is in every year. I've watched Ambersons more times than I've seen Kane. And Ambersons Broken. I've seen The Trial more times than I've seen Citizen Kane. I've, I've definitely seen F for Fake more times because it's my favorite goddamn movie. There's a thing with Wells that, like, I think following the career of, of him as an artist and historical figure who establishes modes of production that others then follow, part of what's going on for Wells is he's establishing... A one-man wrecking crew, both for Hollywood and for his own career, in establishing a new way of working that ultimately he's only able to fully take control of in these really financially compromised productions of his later career, you know, um, like Chimes at Midnight, which he completed totally the way that he wanted to, but it was it was compromised by the way that it was financed and how it could be put out. It was very cheap production. The trial came out the way that he wanted it to. Ultimately, F for Fake came out the way that he wanted it to. These these are movies that he truly finished at the end of his career. And it feels like that's a kind of independent filmmaking that he had to invent over a lot of, you know, he had to break a lot of eggs for this omelet. And the end of the career is is really interesting. And and for that matter, you know, uh, Touch of Evil is another one that I'll watch more often than Citizen Kane and, and have. And Touch of Evil is a compromised film, but you can see that there's enough command of the pieces with Touch of Evil that, for instance, when Henry Mancini lays a, uh, a score over the whole movie that Wells didn't necessarily want a score laid over it, well, there's enough going on in that film, and Henry Mancini's good enough, that that score, whether Wells liked it or not, is terrific and works perfectly with that film so so even the compromised work towards the end it's like he's come around to the way to even make something that can be compromised and still uh, very fully come through and again a bunch of those later films are not compromised and i'm just not gonna i'm not gonna take this kind of you know ridiculous myth from even a good filmmaker like david fincher who probably hasn't seen chimes at midnight and then says, oh, yeah, he fucked up after Citizen Kane. No, he didn't fuck up after Citizen Kane. And David Fincher, you'll never fuck it. I love David Fincher's movies, but he'll never fucking make anything nearly as good as Chimes at Midnight, period, the end. It's not going to happen. He doesn't have it in him. Sorry, rant over. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I wish that there was the push to reevaluate this film and get those original pieces and do this work that was done for something like touch of evil where it's like, okay, where is that 90 page memo for this one? And where's that original footage that we can then, you know, sick Walter Murch on and be like, here, make this good. But I will say, I love the original touch of evil and I love the, the redux as well. I mean, I'm fine with both of those movies. Cause you're right. There's enough there that even though it's a compromised work, that version that came out that we were all used to, I was absolutely fine with it. And the, the merch one, I've seen it a couple times, but it's like, okay, I'm, I'm fine with either version. It's not one of those where I like sit down if it's on TV and I watch the first 15 minutes. And if whenever there's like the moment where I'm like, Oh, this is that version. I'll turn it off. You know, it's like, no, I'll watch whatever version you want to put in front of me. I'm, I'm fine with that. But I wish there was that redux version of lady from Shanghai. And I agree with you, Spencer, as far as Fincher's never going to have the wherewithal to 
scrimp and scrounge and save and barter and, you know, make a movie over 12 years because he doesn't have the finances to do it all in one shot to shoot stuff in one country and cut it together with stuff from another country. We're never going to have that kind of chutzpah. He's not going to have that chutzpah that a Wells would where he would make a movie by any means necessary. I mean, you know, different kinds of artists, different kinds of business people. I mean, like, so one of the big factors with Wells is that he was a terrible businessman. Utterly terrible. I mean, during the period that he was making this, he arranged to buy the footage. So, so part of the financing of Lady from Shanghai was like borrowing money from Harry Cohn that got him stuck, not stuck, but got him in, then he had to pay it back by making Lady from Shanghai. Because uh, he had borrowed this money to leverage on um, on his Around the World in 80 Days musical. And then at the same time, he was buying the It's All True footage from, from RKO. But then <laughs> he signed a contract in, in doing that where he had to pay it off in time. I forget the exact details. But at any rate, he, he was going to get back It's All True. He was going to re-edit it. And he lost it because he didn't have enough money to make a final payment. And he signed a contract that he never should have signed because like material that he, that he was working with should have been free and clear. And, and he signed onerous contracts thinking it was the only way that he could get material back. You know, he was screwed over, but he was also like the dude was screwed over. Um, a bad business person who signed a contract that he shouldn't have signed. Definitely his fault, but that's a factor that one has to has to take into account. And yeah, again, the for Fincher, for instance, and I, I bring up Fincher just because he made Mank and he made all these, you know, mythological statements that are the usual mythology about Wells, you know, very publicly, yet again, to spread that stuff around. But you know, if, if we want to talk about projects that aren't finished, so just how does a filmmaker not finish a project? And Fincher has done over the years, because I follow his career, I want to know what he's working on. I want He has had a number of projects fall apart over time because he didn't accept money. The, the, the budgets that he was going to be given by like HBO or by Netflix or whoever at various points that he was working with. So those are, in fact, unfinished productions. Do I begrudge Fincher for not finishing those productions? No, I don't, because the money wasn't going to come through to do it the right way. And that's not the kind of artist that he is. Wells is a different kind of artist who would start shooting before he had enough money because shooting the thing was more important to him. And out of that, we get Othello. And I'll take Othello over any episode of Mindhunter any day. And Othello was made by Hook and Crook and starting without having all the money and just sort of putting it together you know, piece by piece. And we've seen other artists that have worked this way. You know, John Cassavetes famously got a studio to show up to, to see, uh, a, a, you know, him shooting footage in a casino. He got Columbia to show up uh, for husbands for this big casino scene that there's only like three minutes of it left in the movie. And those three minutes are close-ups. And none of the money that he spent on that was really for the actual movie. It was to convince Columbia to put in more money, which they did. And then ultimately, like, the, you know, the movie got finished. So we've seen other artists that have done things in, in this way. And it's just a different way of doing business. And in Wells's case, for instance, a lot of these films came to grief because he was a terrible businessman while being a good artist. And you know what? I'll take, I'll take the terrible businessman. There is the great romantic myth of Orson Welles. And even if his films were lousy 
if every film was a stranger or lady, lady from Shanghai, there would still be a place for him because the idea of Wells as a as a an I, as a, as a way of approaching cinema is very 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 important, which is you know what what the French saw in him when 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 the auteur theory was getting started. Here's this guy who can work within the system and make it work to his his own ends artistically. Was he a bad businessman? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know that, that line from Othello, I think, sums him up. Think of me as one who loved not wisely but too well, and and I, I think that that's that's Wells. That's how he approached his films. That's how he got into the mess of of Lady from Shanghai because he was pumping his own money into around the world, and 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 the, if he didn't do it, the play wouldn't go ahead. If he didn't borrow this money, the play wouldn't go ahead, and the play has to go on, and the film has to get made, and it has to get finished by hook or by crook, regardless of the consequences. And and because of that, we do have Chimes at Midnight and we do have F for Fake. Yeah, there's just something marvelous about that that Wells spirit. You see it with Ford and you see it with many of the others, but not quite to the same degree. Not at all. Not that energy. It was like an obsession for him, this desire to make things. And I do appreciate the, the Bogdanovich commentary where he's basically reading an interview with Wells and just even imitating him at times and doing the the Wells laugh. And especially when he asks how much money he made doing Lady from Shanghai and, he, and Wells just laughed in his face. He's like, no, I used the money to pay for around the world in 80 days. I didn't make any money off of Lady from Shanghai. He worked the entire time, writer, director, producer, star, all for free. That was it wanted that play to go on. So he didn't make a red cent from all of he did on it. And a big part of why he ended up in Europe wasn't just because of House Un-American Activities Committee, where he for sure would have been called called to testify. So that was in the background, but it was mostly because of his tax situation and his tax situation that came from this particular year of his life, because he was being taxed on on what went into Around the world in 80 days, uh, you know, this, this, you know, this money that he got from Harry Cohn and from other various sources. And it wasn't counted. The IRS wasn't going to count it as a loss. They didn't count it as a business loss. It was just like, oh, yeah, you spent that money. Uh, he ended up leaving the country for most of his career in order to avoid the tax bill on the bad business decisions that he made around having to make the art. I am curious if you guys think it was a little swipe at Hemingway, who he seemed to have that rivalry with throughout his entire career, when Michael O'Hara, person that he killed, was a pro-Franco person, and that he was an anti-Franco person, and then I think it's Everett Sloan was pro-Franco as well, and it's like, just codes that person, codes him as being evil because he was pro-Franco. Even in the less personal work, The Stranger has, you know, there's a lot about fascism and there's a way in which it talks about fascism in The Stranger that is very upfront about the anti-Semitism that it was not in other Hollywood films at the time. You know, Wells was definitely putting forward, you know, political points through through all these films and maybe in a more veiled way, but the, the, the strongest kind of anti-fascist tract that he made might have been Touch of Evil, where everything is sort of built in an allegory against against fascism. Uh, this is going to go off topic here, but this is like one of the things that I found out prepping for this episode that I find just like amazing and crazy about the Wells-Rita Hayworth relationship. So this goes to Hemingway. That, that's, that's why my mind has gone there. 
Wells was teaching Rita Hayworth how to be a bullfighter. He got her bullfighting lessons and he got her really like sort of into bullfighting. And there are stories about her going to Spain with friends who are like really, really like concerned about what's going on. You know, they're really, they're animal lovers. They don't want to see this horrible thing happen. And she's really into this sport because uh, Wells got her into it and was, you know, sort of got her lessons to, to, to bullfighting. Just a bizarre thing about their about the dynamic of their marriage. And then she took that really seriously and was very excited by it. So one of the things, Mike, when you sent me the script, the first thing I did was I typed in, in the word search, atom bomb, with the assumption that there was a lot more of that subtext of the atom bomb. Grisby wants to escape to this island and escape the destruction of the atom bomb. And there isn't. <laughs> in this 165-page script, there are, you know, it's it's as it is in the final film. Grisby outlines his rationale for fake murder so he can escape the potential destruction of the atom bomb. It takes place, the scene takes place in New York, and he points to the skyline of New York and says, the atom bomb will reduce this to rubble, completely destroy it. And that's it. That's the whole reference to the atom bomb in this in this film. A real MacGuffin, as it were. And I was disappointed in that. I felt that Wells's intentions might have been to, to have made a, a greater comment on the madness that was that post-war period, tying in perhaps to the whole Hueck situation, which I agree was, was definitely a major factor in why he leaves the U.S. and returns at a point in time when that, when that blacklist is, is, is dying down in the late 50s for, for Touch of Evil. But it's an interesting little little reference, you know, that, that isn't followed up on. Maybe he didn't push it farther because Rita Hayworth was really traumatized by having her image put onto an atom bomb. <laughs> when she yeah. found out that soldiers had done that, she was she was really witnesses say she was as angry and upset as they ever saw her in her life. She was just scandalized, yeah. Isn't it a shame when politics enter into our artwork? I mean, listeners to the podcast know that we never get political on here and that artwork is should be free of politics. So this is really a shame that he had to go here. You know, I would give this film a one star just because he had to mix politics and art. I promised you I'd say bad things about Biden to sort of balance things out. Though I don't know that the people that want to hear bad things about Biden want to hear the things I would say because I think I'm... Coming at it from, uh, shall we say, not the same, not the same perspective. Uh, my disappointment with. Uh, well, I do notice your like. "Let's Go Brendan" T-shirt that you're wearing. So yeah, well, you know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta be me. Well, this is this film is also really interesting in Wells's career in that it it comes along kind of at the at the end of a major period where he was involving himself in politics in in a really strong way. And was being encouraged, you know, was was like encouraged by FDR to run for senator and potentially run for president because he, you know, Wells had certain rhetorical gifts and he was also as a, a progressive political thinker was pretty intense and advanced. Now, definitely FDR was was pointing towards was the kind of theatricality that Wells could bring, uh, you know, that, that is an essential part of politics and not necessarily all the, the policy stuff. But but Wells was very, very involved throughout this period. And this is, this is about at the end of that, that for both, you know, sort of personal reasons and some of his experiences with 
figures like Nelson Rockefeller and, and others that he was sort of pulling away. Uh, but we still see a lot of politics. I mean, you know, look, a movie like Lady from Shanghai is is not going to be seen today as particularly virtuous in its representation of a diverse population. But when you consider for the time, going into Chinatown, going to Mexico and depicting these places in the way that he did is is definitely Orientalist. It is definitely othering. But by the standard of the time, he's taking you into these places and folding them into an overall story in a way that is very much ahead of a lot of Hollywood that would have, for instance, made the Chinatown sequence not merely a place that they go where they encounter people in San Francisco who are not the white people that you would, you've been mostly seeing for the story. Most movies would have really made this some kind of seat of ultimate corruption. It, even later, you know, we talk about Chinatown. Chinatown sees Chinatown as a seat of ultimate corruption and you know, others that part of town in a very serious way. In Lady from Shanghai, yeah, we don't see fully realized Asian characters, but we do see a representation of a part of town that is not represented as totally evil. It is represented as foreign to the white people that go into it, but Rita Hayworth's character can speak Chinese, has Chinese friends within the plot. Now, we don't know enough about them to quite make sense of it at that point, but there are, you know, there, there are Chinese people that come to her rescue, at this, at this point in the plot. And we can have arguments about like the depiction of a white woman being rescued by people of color. This is all true, but Wells' approach, Wells's approach to the rest of the world and to people of color at the time was actually quite ahead of the game. And in fact, one of the big things with It's All True that scuppered that film was that RKO was uncomfortable with the amount of footage of black people in Brazil that Wells was sending back, that they were simply uncomfortable with seeing Carnival and with seeing, you know, black people represented in film. And so, you know, no, am I, am I going to say that Wells is an amazing ultimate progressive? I am not. But within within the contours of the time, he is doing things within Hollywood in a very different way that are putting forth a vision of the actual American population that was, if problematic, much closer to reality than what what Hollywood was was mostly doing at the time. By all accounts, Wells was remarkably progressive for the period, particularly and more so on radio as an announcer. And he was a staunch supporter of the civil rights movement. And it's interesting, you know, that, that you make the points you make in the script. Bessie has a, a much larger role, a much more significant role. I wouldn't necessarily say it breaks or subverts stereotypes, but she's a more interesting and active character in, this, in the screenplay. And I, I think, you know, I, I keep going back to the screenplay and Wells notoriously rewrote night before shooting. And I'm sure, you know, whatever version he submitted, this two and a half hour version that he submitted was quite different from the script that we have. But but I'm 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 sure she played a you know a very significant role in in that film. And and yes, absolutely Wells has as with It's All True is is certainly pointing his camera uh, at the world in a very empathetic and, and, and fascinating manner. Well, I think the best illustration of that is, is around the world with Orson Welles, the, the BBC TV show that he did in the mid-50s, which is really very interesting. And one of the things that, that I really kicked myself after our discussion on Fake was that we never talked about that show because it was a, in some way a prefiguring that essay style that, that, that Welles used in Fake. 
I'm glad you brought up the Bessie character because when she shows up, I'm like, oh, okay, this is interesting. It's so nice to have a prominent black character. Yeah, she just kind of drops out again. And it's one of those things where I'm just like, ah, oh, man, come on, just give me more. I want to know more yep. of this person. I want to know more about this character. Please give me a little bit more of this because, yeah, I was very excited. Oh, wow, look at a prominent African-American actress inside of this movie. This is fantastic. I love it. And Wells's character, you know, takes her aside and asks her a question that very few maids were asked in, in, in 1930s and 40s Hollywood cinema. Why do you do this job? And she says very bluntly, well, I need the money. Right. So there's a there's an acknowledgement of a, of, a, of a real lived in character there that comes out a, l- a little more in the in, in the script, for sure. It's all in comparison, but for knowledge of history and knowledge of our our culture, just making a comparison between the depictions of people of color in Orson Welles movie versus a Preston Sturges movie. I mean, look, you know, like the depictions of black people in Preston Sturges movies, much as I love Preston Sturges, I cringe every time. You know, there's a character in a Palm Beach story called Snowflake, whose whole purpose is just to have pop-eyed reactions to the ale and quail club shooting up the inside of a train car. It is, it's really the worst minstrel show kind of, kind of stuff. Uh, or, you know, or, or, um, you know, Howard Hawks in the depiction of, uh, background characters and to have and have not, you know, that this is, you know, it takes place on an island where there are a lot of black and a lot of indigenous, uh, descended people. And they're in the movie. They're included, but they are very much kept at an arm's length in the backdrop. They're not made fun of. They're not treated as villainous, but they're also just treated as furniture in, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, contemporaneous films, it's interesting to see the way that, uh, you know, the, the imperfect politics would be worked in. And, and Wells, among some others, is like one of those, one of those figures whose, whose work I think really is important to seeing the history of our cultural changes and the recognition of what is the real population of the United States versus the white assumed uh, majority population for most of the 20th century and, and sort of how, how they're depicted in relationship to everyone else who are real people who have lived here. Well, I think we forget here in 2021, and Peter, you might not forget this, just how poorly Irish people are treated in the United States. And that basically having Michael O'Hara as your protagonist is showing someone not just he's not just the underclass because he works with his hands. He works on ships, these kind of things. He's also the underclass because Irish people were hated for decades, if not a century here in the United States. And so he's really put odds just because he's an Irish person. And of course, Wells had a very close connection to Ireland, having, you know, acted on the Gate Theatre at a young age, a close friendship with Michal McLeamore and Hilton Edwards, who ran the Gate Theatre. The Irish in America were the first group to enact cancel culture, you know, in the, in the, in the 1890s and the 19, in the early years of the 20th century, the Irish were picketing the, the, the stage Irishmen. You know, and they were they were condemning comic strips that ran that image. They were marching outside stage productions that replicated that. And consequently, you know, the image of the Irish improves significantly in the in the mid 19 early mid 1910s. And then, of course, you know, you got Barry Fitzgerald. But the Irish were really that that first group to actively change how they were being represented and, and Hollywood, for the most part, film in general, for the most part, responded very, very positively to that. Yeah. 
How do you rate Wells' Irish accent? Terrible. Horrendous. It's, yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of the things that holds his performance back in the film. You know, that like having to do that accent, uh, you know, makes it, him a less expressive figure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he writes in a, in a fake Irish patois, too. I mean, you're reading the script. It's, it's full of not quite the bigash and the bigara, but it's pretty close. And no Irish sailor spoke like that. I doubt I've never met an Irish sailor, but I'm, you know, I don't rate it very highly at all. And, you know, one last thing on, on his, on his lackluster performance. And that is, you know, you've got two stages of his performance. You've got the performance he gives in all these wide shot sequences in the, in the original shooting of the film. And then we've got his studio bound performances where he's performing somewhat under duress. And I think that adds to the, to the sleepiness and the indifference of the performance. He's just, you know, I don't want to be doing this. I got to do it, but I, 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 I don't want to be doing this. And yeah, I think it plays out, especially in those close-ups. It almost feels like that Irish accent that he's affecting is holding him back to as far as he seems to have to speak softly and with that lyricism in his voice that he can't break from that. And so even when he's telling that story about the sharks, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's not Quint telling his shark story about the Indianapolis. It's very just like, Oh, this is it. And then they took me lucky charms. You know, it's like, I can understand him being more like shell shocked in a speech like that. And, you know, having witnessed something horrible like this, but that's kind of his performance through the whole thing is very like, Oh, if you don't be my, you know, it's like, okay, like let's get a little bit more. Like I could see him doing that on the radio possibly and pulling it off, but having him there physically with that, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time buying this. And I'm glad to hear that it wasn't as authentic as it might've been. Oh no. And there's, again, given his connections to Ireland and the time he spent there, there's really no excuse for that. And that he is indefensible. You know, you know, we have not talked about is William Castle, another, you know, shameless showman. At the beginning of his career, right, he had, he had optioned the, the, the book and with the intention of directing it. He had known Wells. He was quite friendly with Wells and handed it over to Wells and became an assistant director. I believe he shot, because we see his name on the clapperboard, so he shot what looks like the, just the second unit footage and played the role of a, an assistant director. And I think he gets an associate producer credit on the film, but he's totally in the background of this seems to have no real say in, in, in the proceedings, which is why his name I'm up in, in 90 minutes of talk. One reason for that is because the lie that Wells told that became the story of how he came to do lady from Shanghai leaves William Castle out. And, you know, he tells this this story, which is very entertaining, but utterly untrue, about calling Harry Cohn for money for the for, for around the world in any days. And yes, he called Harry Cohn for money, but but that uh, there was a woman in the box office who was reading the book that Lady from Shanghai is based on. And he says, Oh, I got the, just the book for you. And it's it's this this one that she's reading. Sounds great. You know, it's a good story, but it's totally not true. Castle had reached out about a year before this to Wells as, you know, potential to play the lead. Wells liked it because his really, you know, sort of pot boilers responded favorably. And Castle even wanted to cast Rita Hayworth as, as you know, another female lead for the, for the film. So 
Hassel had done this. The idea was already there. Then Wells comes around to it with and suggested to Harry Cohn and Castle had been working with with Cohn. But by the time Castle hears about it again, Wells has already done it to where he's going to be the director. And Castle has been kind of muscled out. And Castle was very, very hurt over this. And then ultimately decided to participate in the film because he said there's only, you know, this hurts, this sucks, but there's only one chance that I'm probably going to have to work on an Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth movie. And so this is it. And I'll see how he does and and go from there. But Castle has a much bigger part of this story. And I think I think, a, a, yeah, a big reason why we don't get as much is because Welles has that really fun, total lie about how it was that he came to do the film. I believe he, he recounts that story in the 1980, early 80s arena interview that he gave for British television. As late as that point, he's he's still trotting out that old story. And yeah, it's a very unfair story. It really misrepresents Castle's role in this. You know, another thing I want to say about this film, and it's, it's again, somewhat damning of, of the film, it has an awful opening dreadful opening scene, which is atypical of Wells' films. You think of Kane, you think of the Ambersons, Othello, fantastic opening. Even the trial has that, you know, that, that little separate opening that kind of encapsulates the whole film. Lady from Shanghai really starts off on the worst possible note, doesn't it? Just that awful studio-bound stuff, the terrible fight scene. Wells' dreadful punch. Not not physically graceful or <laughs> forceful, and and that makes it very atypical of of Wells's films because he really knew how to kickstart a film. And the narration feels like it's holding it together. I mean, I think that it was always going to be a movie with narration, but this is one of those narr- that feels out of the gate, like uh, uh, you know, like it's papering over something. You're looking at narration, and and it's over footage where clearly these characters are having a dialogue. Clearly, Wells's character is talking to to Rita Hayward's character. There's dialogue that has been suppressed over that, and of course, throughout the film, too. Yeah, it's a very very poor opening. Stick with it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, and we don't know if that's Wells's choice or if that's the studio's choice to paper over that dialogue. But nevertheless, it's just it's not not a great sequence. I think the decision was made that. Once you take out X amount of footage, things don't make sense anymore. So you've got to use the voiceover narration to, uh, to tie it together. It's not in that 1946, early 46 script. Yeah, I also feel bad for Castle in between this and then the story of Rosemary's Baby, where he was, again, going to shoot that. I mean, Castle had a great career, and I love his movies, but it just always feels like he was just on the precipice of making it even bigger. So making it so that his would be the household name versus the Orson Welles versus, I mean, Welles would have been already, but Polanski, you know, like if he was up there in that same tier, you know, that would have been kind of nice. It is really sad. And it's, you know, this is also telling about the the, the political economy of Hollywood and and how people can have legit versus non-legit careers. It's one thing for a Wells to go slumming with a thriller. You know, The Stranger was seen as both participating and and being a nice boy within the Hollywood system, but it was also in comparison to, you know, Ambersons and Kane and how he had started out, it was this big step down. And then similarly, Lady from Shanghai, while being a Rita Hayworth, more a picture, it's an a picture within this kind of crime genre that would be seen as a little bit unworthy. But that doesn't stick 
ultimately, there are a lot of things that stick to Wells, but that doesn't stick to Wells. Whereas for William Castle working in the B-movie world that he that he's got started in because that's where he could start that stuck with him you know for his entire career and yeah rosemary's baby was in a a, a a big final attempt to get out of that b-movie world and and do something more legit and robert evans had other thoughts when does william castle go independent late 50s i want to say mid but i could be wrong mid? okay but it's, it's it's a good chunk of time after after lady from shanghai and and he's at columbia Castle's independence comes up along with the, the like, you know, drive-in market and the market of, you know, exploitation films for teenagers, you know, that comes along a little later. He's just a B-movie director at Columbia and would remain that until he went independent, right? And I didn't appreciate how Bogdanovich, he would, he would include Castle in the story when he tells the revision, but he just poo-poos Castle's whole career. It's just like, well, he's kind of a showman. It's that's like, right. Yeah, and, yeah, that's true. And, your pals with the magician. Have you seen some of these movies that he did? These were good damn movies that he was making, you know? Come on. Have you seen Homicidal? Have you seen 13 Ghosts? You know, th- these are great movies. Straight Jacket? Come on. Well, but these are also, this is also the limits of, of thought for somebody like Bogdanovich, you know? And I, I like Bogdanovich's films, but, but this, this is an elitist, you know, this is an elitist guy. Wells would have been more likely to to praise Castle's work. I don't know that he ever had an opportunity to, but you know, Wells was a lot less snobby about B movies and and that kind of world. But for Bogdanovich, you know, it's just uh, Bogdanovich worked for Corman, would tell nice stories about him, and I think Targets is really one of his best films. But Bogdanovich wouldn't, you know, rated that as as a stepping stone to his real career and not not as as being great work and. I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, I think that's a limit of imagination. It's kind of that same thing. I go back and I watch Targets a lot more than I watch the ones that are, you know, critically lauded from Bogdanovich because I just feel there's so much good stuff there. And I can feel, you know, he was standing on the shoulders of giants a lot of times, especially in those early days. I feel the same fullerness of it. I feel, you know, these other people that he was asking for advice on how to make films. And it's like, okay, this is all there. And yeah. It, that would have been well, nice and tough, tougher to judge. But his and Polly Platt's work on uh, the Wild Angels, the Wild Angels, I think, is a really go way off topic. But that's a really, really great movie. Um, I, and I rank that one higher and as a more interesting statement on the counterculture in America at the time than Easy Rider, which was inspired by the Wild Angels. It's a tougher film. If you want to talk about cruel abandonments. Polly Platt, I think, is is way up there. And, and I, I think he made his best work with her. Absolutely. To bring it back to a lady from Shanghai, you know, like Wells goes sort of slumming. And, you know, as, as much as Wells wasn't a snob, I do think his stories about how he came to do his lies about how he came to do Lady from Shanghai and then also his his lie that he told about how he came to do Touch of Evil, which, you know, that was being sort of invited in by Charlton Heston after he'd been, you know, cast as the heavy. Heston suggested Wells should should have the job. Wells really should be grateful to Charlton Heston. Instead, he tells the story about how he and Zugsmith got drunk one night and 
and they wanted to make a movie together. And he said, show me your worst script. And uh, Zug Smith hands over, you know, the script to Touch of Evil, then called Badge of Evil and says, this is the worst one. You should do it. And again, a great that's kind of great self mythologizing story. Uh, but it's not true. And um, it's sort of sort of placing wells above this material that actually he was known to love. Like, apparently, he just never went anywhere without some pulp crime novel. He constantly read this stuff. He loved it. And yeah, in Touch of Evil, he, quote unquote, elevates it. But he also uh, really goes swimming in the muck. That's what's great about Touch of Evil is that, sure, you know, there's a Shakespearean kind of quality to the, the way that Quinlan goes down by the end of that film. Much more Shakespearean than anything going on in Lady from Shanghai. But at the same time, part of what's great about it is how it's ready to just go in into the muck and go dirtier even than, you know, most of the other crime pictures of the time. Of course, you could say the reverse, you know, that took Shakespeare and brought it down to the level of pulp. Well, and when you compare Wells's Shakespeare's to, uh, to Olivier's Shakespeare's, Olivier's are so turgid and I don't know, I find them near unwatchable myself. Hamlet is especially bad, but they're, they're, they're just, they're Shakespeare. You know, they're doing this thing that is the off-putting, you know, why people don't want to see that. Whereas, you know, Chimes at Midnight or, or Othello, you know, these, these are contending in this way that is, uh, as you say, Peter, taking that into the dirt and the muck and, and, you know, making it very lived in. It makes it much more easy to relate to these characters. Yeah, they don't feel like they're up here, these art house films that only the elites can participate in. It feels much more like by even bringing these characters to the movie theater, that's one step you know, closer to us. And then by, yeah, making them much more human and much more relatable is another way that we can now experience this, this stuff that normally you would have to pay top dollar to go to a theater to see. Well, and to Wells's credit, in bending Shakespeare to his will, he does a radical thing that Shakespeare couldn't imagine, which is making Falstaff a tragic hero. A lot of people, Shakespeare's greatest character or one of his greatest characters, all that, but ultimately Falstaff is not the center of the action. He's a supporting player, and Wells takes the supporting player, the poor guy, puts him at the center, makes him the tragic hero, and also turns Prince Hal into an asshole. The mythology of the, the Henry plays is all about building up the transformation of Prince Hal into the great king. And where Wells leaves it off is that Prince Hal turns into the guy who kills his best friend with a glance. The amen is worse. It's, it's the, the abandonment. Again, we're back to that cruel rejection and abandonment, yeah. I mean, the abandonment is huge, it, and it's huge for Wells, and I think it's it's the thing that most recommends visit or revisit to Lady from Shanghai is you know sort of looking at this as a as a, a, as a psychodrama of abandonment and this relationship that's gone wrong, and whether it's about Rita Hayworth or it's about Orson Welles feeling abandoned by his father, feeling the abandonment of you know or the way that he abandoned his father. Uh, you know, that it, it, that's a push and pull that first he was abandoned, then he then he abandoned his own father because he was, uh, you know, because his father was was an alcoholic and Wells couldn't deal with him anymore. And, you know, really felt grief over that. This is his very sense of abandonment is really central to Wells's work, even in something like F for Fake, which is a very joyful, fun film. There is also, you know, the centering of of a character who is the kind of person who could be abandoned. 
And there's the there's a worry over the artwork that, that can be abandoned and what it means for something to live on even after it has been abandoned. So it's it's a constant for for Wells's work. And I think, yeah, I'll I'll just I'll say that's for me the most fascinating thing. Why why I've watched Lady from Shanghai as many times as I have, why I'll watch it again, even though I'm with you, Peter, like I rank it near the bottom. I if not the bottom, like I do like the stranger better than Lady from Shanghai. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. The high-octane thriller Ida Red, starring Josh Hartnett, Frank Grillo, and Melissa Leo, is now streaming on Redbox. Crime boss Ida Red Walker turns to her son to pull off one last heist to get out of prison. But with the FBI closing in, her son must choose between family and freedom. Stream Ida Red instantly on Redbox On Demand today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method. Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Some people call me Mr. Wonderful. Other people call me William Douglas Street Jr. Born in a log cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky, young Douglas soon elevated himself from field hand to tiger, from tiger to reporter, and from reporter to doctor, from doctor to co-ed, from co-ed to attorney, from attorney to congressman. 
I meet somebody, I know within the first two minutes who they want me to be. I need some money. Make some money. I mean, I could sit here and make you think you're a genius for correctly analyzing this complex, exotic, notorious Negro. You know that the white man owns this world? I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Your credentials are just too amazing to believe. What would you concoct? Such a licentious, low-down lie. I wanted to get the money. Open your mouth. This is all just a vacation to you, isn't it? Prison, a vacation? People ask me if I regret what happened. <laughs> I'm sure I regret it, but you can take my word for it. It's an unforgettable experience. I think, therefore I scan. I know not what I am. I am Chameleon Street. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Chameleon Street. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Spencer and Peter. So, Peter, what is happening in your world, sir? The pains of fatherhood, of being an old dad. Somewhat coincidentally, my son's name is Orson. So that, that's it. I'm, I'm, I continue to wrap up a documentary on, on private film collectors and what's been saved by private film collectors. And uh, every time I say I'm wrapping it up, I'm being more and more truthful to that statement. So I'm getting close to being done on that. It's all fatherhood for the most part. And Spencer, how about you? What's happening in your world, sir? I'm in post-production on a new movie, and I won't say very much about it because I've gotten really superstitious uh, about the process of finishing a film. And I'm in post-production, and that's a good place to be, but I, I won't say much more than that. And I'm trying to get some some writing done. I don't know how much of that is going to happen uh, before the end of post on on this movie, but I'm I'm hoping that there can be a little bit of background action on on some of the the writing projects I've been working on. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks again to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, please visit Patreon.com/slash/projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. <laughs> More than luck in Shanghai, you need more than luck in Shanghai. She said it drew you into her well. She shot her husband and his lawyer dead. Left you holding the bag instead and drew you deeper into her well. Killed already a Franco spy. Didn't help your chances at the trial. Now you're walking your last mile, shaky dry. Now you know why you don't cross the lady from Shanghai. She took you on a cruise around Pacific Rim. Just you and her and husband Jim. In Sugarloaf Bay, she gave him the slip. With sharks swimming all around the ship. Hungry for blood, life and limb. The sharks knew were better than you and him. And all the while, the sharks knew why. You don't cross the lady from Shanghai. Killed already a Franco spy. Didn't help your chances at the trial. 
Die. 